Hello, and welcome to a more perfect podcast. This is episode two of our History of Iran miniseries. I'd like to start this with a quote from an article that I read titled The Myth of the White Revolution, Mohammad Reza Shah, Modernization and the Consolidation of Power. The quote reads like so. Political myth becomes increasingly relevant and explicit in the political use of history and the attempt by leaders to identify themselves with a principle. What does this mean? It's saying that leaders will try to identify their policies, their movements, their actions with a principle in history, an idea, a historical idea. I take this as justification for this Iran history series, examining the United States and Iran's relations. Because we can't really understand the movements of the United States and the movements of Iran without understanding the history. We also, without understanding history, we fall fall victim to people trying to push a narrative, trying to push a policy on us that may not be wise, trying to push us even into, God forbid, another war. And we can hopefully avoid falling into stupid justifications and falling for stupid narratives. So without further ado, welcome to the history of Iran. last left off, 1953, the CIA and MI6 had just overthrown the Prime Minister of Iran and reinstated Mohammad Reza Shah Pahlavi. That very same year though, the President of the United States would give a speech that would change not only world history, but greatly impact Iran's history as well. I therefore make the following proposal. The governments principally involved to the extent permitted by elementary prudence to begin now and continue to make joint contributions from their stockpiles of normal uranium and fissionable materials to an international atomic energy agency. The United States would be more than willing. It would be proud to take up with others principally involved the development of plans whereby such peaceful use of atomic energy would be expedited. Allow all peoples of all nations to see that in this enlightened age, the great powers of the earth, both of the East and of the West, are interested in human aspirations first, rather than in building up the armament of war. Against the dark background of the atomic bomb, the United States does not wish merely to present strength, but also the desire and the hope for peace. To the making of these faithful decisions, the United States pledges before you, and therefore before the world, its determination to help solve the fearful atomic dilemma, to devote its entire heart and mind to find the way by which the miraculous inventiveness of man shall not be dedicated to his death, but consecrated to his life. President Eisenhower gave one of his most famous speeches at the United Nations Conference that year. This speech was titled Atoms for Peace. Another element that is less talked about with this Atoms for Peace program 
although it was mainly for the peaceful proliferation and spread of nuclear energy and nuclear power, it was also for another purpose. Keep in mind we were fighting the Cold War at the time. This caused us to have a dual interest in providing this nuclear power and energy, namely being that we wanted influence over the nations that were provided with it and not the Soviet Union. You call it a bribe to these governments and to these nations to be on our side versus the Soviet Union. So that was another ideological motive for his Atoms for Peace program. Atoms for Peace took a while to realize. Four years later, in 1957, it was through the establishment of the International Atomic Energy Agency, or the IAEA for short. An agency that, you may be surprised to know, is still around today. That very same year, 1957, the United States signs a civil nuclear cooperation agreement. The start, you could say, of our nuclear relations with Iran and its nuclear program and pursuit of nuclear weapons in the future, although nobody could see it at that time. We sign this nuclear cooperation agreement, which basically says that we can exchange nuclear knowledge with you, we'll give you education, we'll give you resources, etc., etc. And the Shah never wanted to act slowly. In 1959, so two years later, he establishes Tehran Nuclear Research Center, or the TNRC for short. Eight years later, 1967, the United States provides Iran with its first nuclear reactor and materials to boot. At the time, Iran had no knowledge of anything concerning nuclear energy, nuclear development, even weapons at the time. Nothing. They had to go to the United States to our very own MIT in California to be educated on such things. This is the first packet of data sent between the United States and Iran. This is, if Iran is Thanos, this is like the first stone in the gauntlet. Him collecting all the stones is like Iran obtaining a nuclear weapon which is something that none of the other nations want to happen in this continuing story. With this nuclear reactor and materials in 1967, I'd like to read you guys a quote from the Brookings Institution. Brookings Institution states that in 1967, the United States supplied Iran with a 5-megawatt nuclear research reactor along with highly enriched uranium to fuel the reactor housed at the TRNC. Once again, that's the Tehran Nuclear Research Center. The Brookings Institution continues to say, The reactor under safeguards had the capability to produce up to 600 grams of plutonium per year on sp in spent fuel. A man called Akbar Etemad, deemed the father of Iran's nuclear program, he later revealed that the TNRC was the site of experiments with chemically extracting plutonium, and Iran also admitted using the, that same reactor in the early 1990s for the production of small amounts of plut polonium-210 
which is a radioactive substance that can be used to start a chain reaction inside of a nuclear weapon. If you were curious, that reactor we provided them all the way back in 1967, it's still in use today. Along with the Brookings Institution, I got my knowledge of this from a lot of different sources. They're all going to be in the description of this episode. I heavily, heavily encourage you to swipe up, go into episode details. All the links will be provided there in order that I reference them. I will not always say Brookings Institution or History.com when I reference a source. I'm just going to tell you guys a story because in my opinion, that's easier to comprehend without all these websites being thrown in the mix. But when necessary, I will explicitly acknowledge the source. That was the first salvo of Iran's nuclear program. I decided that I'm going to cover this as a side story, so to speak, in the coming episodes. This is so that we can see the development over time how different leaders, different ideologies affected Iran's nuclear program to lead it to the crisis levels that it was at today. Most importantly, how the United States and Iran, how their relations changed over time, and subsequently, how the nuclear program in Iran changed over time as a result of those changing policies. Again, please check the description of this episode There is a lot of sources that I read, I researched hard to make this series. There's a reason why it takes a while to get these episodes out. Go into the details, click those links. It's very, very interesting. On that note, thank you for listening to a more perfect podcast. The series will continue in episode three. Have a more perfect day.